Now, Father, as we come to look at your word together now, we, we ask that your spirit who gave us this word would, would be working in each of our hearts. We pray that uh, he will be strengthening me, uh, enabling me to preach your word uh, truthfully and clearly and in his power. We pray that your spirit would work in, in, in each one of our hearts, that, you, that, that he would open our eyes to Jesus, that we might appreciate him more and more. Uh, and appreciate the wonder of what he has done for us uh, and help us to be able to think clearly uh, about all these things today and we ask these things Lord in Jesus name Amen uh, Those of you who are regular here will know that uh, what we normally do on nearly every Sunday in the year uh, is uh, expository preaching we work through a passage uh, usually we're looking through a book uh, and we just keep on working through that because we want God to have the, the, uh, the microphone uh, we want be seeing what is God saying in the Bible uh, to be setting the agenda uh, for what um, uh, for what we are, uh, are preaching and learning and thinking about together. Uh, but once in a while, every now and then, we will do a little series uh, that might be a topical one. Uh, and this series starts off uh, as well, we're starting up a new series, a topical series uh, about the cross. Uh, and we're going to be looking at different aspects of the cross, uh, different things that. Uh, that uh, God has secured for us uh, through the cross and the different benefits uh, that Christ uh, has, has won for us on the cross. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at various theological concepts uh, that the Bible uses to show us uh, what God has done for us there. Uh, we'll look at things like justification and propitiation and look at redemption. We'll look at the victory of Christ over the evil one. We'll look at ideas of reconciliation. We'll look at the death of Christ as an example. Some of those words might be very familiar to you. And some of those words you might think, what is he talking about? But that's okay. We'll work through it all together. Right? And I trust that we will learn to think more clearly uh, about the cross uh, by the end of the series. Uh, and to appreciate more and more what Christ has done for us there. Uh, so that we can guard our thinking, our speech, and our actions, so that Christ is properly honored uh, for what he has done, and that we don't compromise or lose on this very fundamental tenet uh, of our faith. And so we start today by looking at actually the most basic and central truth about the cross. It's a truth that holds everything else together uh, in the whole series, uh, and in fact, it's the truth that holds the, all the theology around the cross together. If you lose this, then you lose the foundation for everything else. All other truths about the cross, all the things about reconciliation and justification and victory over Satan, etc., etc., whatever other truths about it, when you dig back deeply enough, it's actually based on this and derives the power from this. This is like the, the hub of the wheel. And all of the other truths about the cross are, are spokes that come out from that hub. And that very central truth that we're talking about today, is actually very simple. Jesus Christ died in our place to take the punishment for our sins. Jesus Christ died in our place to take the punishment for our sins. In the language of theologians, this is called penal substitution. Penal substitution, right? Now, what does I say penal substitution? Uh, the word penal means to do with punishment, right? So in our country, there's a, there's a penal system, uh, and that's a system for punishing crime, isn't it? Or at least it's supposed to be. Um, we have some visitors from Sydney here um, who are here for, for, for Tim's, Tim's wedding. Uh, Sydney was known as a penal colony. 
Right? Back in British days, if they wanted to make money from plantations, they'll come to Malaya. But if they were to be punished for a crime, they'll go to Sydney. Right? <laughs> the word penal is to do with punishment. And we all know about substitution, don't we? Right? If you're playing football and there's a substitution, what does that mean? It means one player comes off and another player goes on to replace him. So what we mean by penal substitution is that Jesus died in our place as our substitute to take the punishment for our sins. Now, where do we find penal substitution in the Bible? Actually, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, but today I want us to look at one Old Testament passage where it's particularly dominant and then show you what the New Testament does with it. Now have a look with me at that Old Testament reading for today, Isaiah 52. Uh, verse 13 onwards. Isaiah is writing here about 720 years before Christ. Uh, and in his prophecy, there's a group of songs that are called the servant songs. And here's one of them. And as you look at the songs, you actually see there are five stanzas to the song. Five, five verses, right, in the song. Uh, and there's three Bible verses in each, in each part. That's a bit confusing. Isn't it? Verses as in, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. There's five of them. And verse as in verse one, verse two, verse three in, in each part. Okay. Uh, the first stanza, uh, which is verse 13 to 15, God is speaking, and God is speaking about this figure whom he calls his servant. Uh, and it's an introduction that explains the message of the song without actually explaining it. It summarizes it without actually explaining it. And God starts by telling us that this servant is going to prosper. He says, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He's going to be exalted. And so you think, well, what's this servant going to do? You know, what kind of smart choices is he going to make that result in his exaltation? What, what kind of godly yet brilliant strategy moves he will ultimately make so that he will be high and lifted up? How is he going to go from strength to strength, from glory to glory? Well, and then we read the next verse, verse 14. And at first, it, it doesn't fit, does it? Because it's not talking about the, the glory of the servant, at least not in the conventional way of thinking about glory. It's, it's talking about his mutilation. It says, as his appearance was marred, so marred, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's, that's an awful picture, isn't it? And yet, somehow or other, this humiliation is linked to his exaltation. It's so unexpected that people won't understand. And the rulers of the earth, the kings of verse 15, will be dumbfounded. They'll shut their mouths when they finally see and understand the meaning of this humiliation and exaltation. So what is it? Well, the second part or stanza of the poem is the first three verses of 53. And here, Isaiah writes in the voice of well, what we will call witnesses. Right? These witnesses are Israelites who, who believe in the servant. We know they're Israelites from the context of the passage. Isaiah 52 was about the fact that God was going to redeem Israel. Isaiah 54 is a call to Israel to rejoice in the redemption that God has won for them. And so here in Isaiah 53 is how that redemption is accomplished. And so Israel, redeemed Israel, is speaking about how it happened. And they're looking at the servant's life and they're telling us about him. They're believers now, but they didn't always believe. And so they know what they say is so surprising that it's hard to accept as true. 
They start by saying in verse 1, Who has believed what they heard from us? Or, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, God in action, in his power, to whom has it been revealed? Well, it's, it's seen here in the servant, but, but the servant looks too ordinary. Verse 2 says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This servant wouldn't, wasn't going to be powerful and majestic and strong like a, like a big tree in a, in a well-watered forest. He's, he's going to be fragile and weak like a, like a small plant in a dry place. Uh, furthermore, he wouldn't be much to look at. It'd be quite plain. He would, verse 2 continues, have no formal majesty that we should look at him, no, no beauty that we should desire him. And so his experience would not be universal adulation, quite the opposite. He would be unwanted and detested. He would be despised, verse 3, and rejected by men. And this rejection will make him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it wasn't only people in general who would dismiss him. Even these witnesses, these people who who would become the believers in Israel, the voice they were hearing in in Isaiah, they, they would lose respect for him. They would say, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As far as God's people were concerned, this servant of the Lord was, was going to be a reject. A reject whose defining experience as a result of his rejection would be horrible misery and anguish. Is this where the power of God is seen? Is this where the arm of the Lord is revealed? In an earlier servant song, the servant was said to be the one who will bring justice to the earth and God's salvation to the ends of the world. So why is God saying that this servant will suffer in this way? Well, the third stanza of the song tells us why the servant would suffer. We would never have worked it out, couldn't have known it, unless God revealed it. But God's revealed it to these witnesses, and now, in their voice, they, they, they tell it to us. And they tell us that the servant's suffering was for them. He would suffer as their substitute. First of all, surely he has borne our griefs. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See? The anguish that the servant would suffer would be the anguish that they were meant to suffer. The pain that he bore was meant to be their pain. His misery was meant to be their misery. But they wouldn't know it at the time. They would think that he was being punished by God. Verse uh, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They would think that he was an evil man because God was pouring out his anger against him. And in a sense, they would be right. He, he, he would be punished by God. He would be judged by the Lord. He would experience the just penalty of sin. But on the other sense, they would be completely wrong. This servant was innocent. He wouldn't be punished for his sins, but for theirs. And so they say in verse 5, But, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or, or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. You see that? This servant would be their substitute. The punishment that he received would result in them being reconciled to God. 
And once again, they'll be blessed, they'll be restored as God's people in God's place under God's rule. This servant would suffer on behalf of these believing Israelites, even though they didn't realize it at the time. It's very clear. This is penal substitution, isn't it? And so they say in verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant would bear the sins of God's people. Well, the fourth stanza of the song just picks up the story of how he would suffer. Uh, Verse 7 talks about how he would be led out to die, oppressed, afflicted, but not opening his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers of silence, he, he, he won't open his mouth. He wouldn't deserve, but he wouldn't resist. In verse 8, we see that his, his trial will be unjust and his death will be violent. By oppression and judgment, he would be taken away and, and he would be stricken for the transgressions of God's people. Verse 9 tells of his burial. His fate would be the grave, just like the fate of wicked men. And the particular grave he would go to was that of a rich man. He would be in that grave even though he had done no violence and and no deceit was found in his mouth. And Though he was innocent, he would suffer and die and be buried like a sinner. But even that was not going to be outside the purposes of God. That servant's rejection, the unjust trial, the innocent suffering was, was not beyond God's control. It would still be part of God's plan. It would be, verse 10, the will of God to crush him God would put him to grief see he would be under God's punishment wouldn't he it's God's work his death would be an offering for sin in the middle of verse 10 a sacrifice to take away sin penal substitution but God's plan for this servant would not end with death in the second half of verse 10, when his soul makes an offspring, uh, soul makes an offspring, the soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, that is the fruit of his labor. He shall prolong his days, verse 10. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. He would once again see life. He would be vindicated. Not only would the servant die, but there would be good things at the end of it. But how can this mean? How could the servant both die as an offering for sin and then yet see his offspring and be exalted and all those things and prolong his days? How does that work? How can the will of the Lord prosper in his hand, as it says, when he's already been killed? Unless, of course, there's a resurrection. We saw from the beginning of this song that the servant would be raised, would be lifted up, would be exalted. And this suffering servant would live again. And not just in spite of the suffering and mutilation, but because of it. The second half of verse 11 says, By his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Right? He'll make people righteous. That is, 
make them be able to be said to be non-guilty in the sight of God. He shall bear their iniquities, take their sins for them. And therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many. Therefore, he will be exalted. He shall have that dividing of the portion with the strong. It's like a, the picture is like a warrior who is rewarded from the spoils of battle. Go back to the beginning, he's highly lifted up. And the reason for that, verse 12 again, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see how many times Isaiah keeps on going back over and over again to make sure we get it. Right? This is penal substitution. Yeah? The New Testament, of course, identifies this servant with Jesus Christ. And the voice of the Israelites, well, they must line up with the voice of those first Jewish believers. Because those first Jewish believers, they were the remnant of Israel, waiting for God to come and to save them and, and to bring in his kingdom. They were people who knew Jesus but didn't initially understand the significance of his death and, until after his resurrection. People like, like Peter and James and John and, and others who came to believe. Jesus died as their substitute. He took their sins so that they could be forgiven and enter into his kingdom. They're the voice we hear in Isaiah 53. But there is something else that God said to his servant a few chapters before this. Have a look with me back at our 49 verse 6. In Isaiah 49 verse 6. And here again he's talking to the servant. And he says to the servant, It is... I'll wait for you for a moment. It's page 737. He says to the servant, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too small. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. You see that? The salvation that God was, was going to bring through the servant. Yes, first of all, it's for those Israelites. But it's not just for them. It's for the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews as well. And that's exactly what happened. The kingdom was opened up to the Gentiles like us. And so we can enter the kingdom on the same basis as the Jewish believers. That is by faith in Christ. And the death of Christ on the cross applies not only to the Jewish believers, but to the, the Gentile believers as well. And so we too can say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, just now I said the New Testament identifies a servant as Jesus Christ. And, well, where do we see that? Now, there's numbers of passages we could, we could go to. Many do so in some way or other. But the clearest one to take is that one we read just now in 1 Peter 2. So turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. It's on page 1220. And notice how much of these, this passage comes from Isaiah 53. Right? Isaiah 53 is a prophecy looking forward. 1 Peter 2 is looking back. Right? 
Uh, Peter, one of those Jewish believers who didn't understand the significance of Jesus' death until after his resurrection, now bears direct witness as to who that servant is. And in this context, actually, he's, he's telling Christian slaves to follow the example of Jesus as someone who is willing to suffer unjustly and, and to bear it patiently. But as he does, he speaks very clearly about the servant and penal substitution. In 1 Peter 2, 22, he says, He committed, that's Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And you remember Isaiah 53, 9, what it says about the servant? He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then in verse 23, Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the him who judges justly. Remember Isaiah 53, 7? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In verse 24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And in Isaiah 53, 5, the believer says about the servant, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. Do you see the echoes? In verse 25, Peter continues, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is there any doubt that Peter identifies Jesus as that servant of Isaiah? No doubt at all, isn't it? Can there be any doubt that the Bible teaches us that Jesus died to take the punishment for our sins. No doubt at all. It is very, very clear that Jesus is the servant of Isaiah and that his death was a penal substitution. Now, there are many other ways we could have gone about showing penal substitution from the Scriptures. Uh, for example, we could have looked at the lambs that were sacrificed at Passover, uh, how they were killed as a substitute for the death of a son, initially, and how Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, a penal substitute. Or we could have looked at the concept of the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament, that the punishment for sin, and, and Jesus said he was going to drink from that cup even though he was innocent of sin, and he, he drank it for us. And we could have looked at the distress and the trepidation, the anticipation of drinking that uh, he, he, that accompanied his anticipation of drinking that in the Garden of Gethsemane because it's a, it's a penal substitution. He's taking the cup of God's wrath. Or we could have talked about how God provided a ram to be the substitute for Isaac as a sacrifice for sin on Mount Moriah, a, a penal substitute. And how 2,000 years later he provided his own son, the lamb that Abraham was promised, as a sacrifice for sin on the same mountain. We could have looked at the concept of sacrifices in the Old Testament, particularly on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 17, and we would have seen the annual sacrifices in the Old Testament illustrated penal, penal substitution because an animal died in the place of the people for their sin. And we would have also seen that animal sacrifice can't really take away sin, that they're pointing to the real sacrifice to come, the sacrifice of Jesus once for all on the cross, which is a penal substitution. 
Or we could have looked at John's Gospel, where Caiaphas the high priest says, it is better for one man to die on behalf of all the nation than for everyone to perish. And, and how John explains that Caiaphas meant one thing by that, but God was actually using him as high priest to speak about the penal substitutionary death of Christ. Or we could have looked at the passage in Deuteronomy 21, where everyone hanging on a tree is under God's curse, God's punishment for sin. And incidentally, that's why you notice Peter in 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Right? Instead of saying on the cross, he could have said on the cross, but he purposely says on the tree because that helps us remember the, the curse. And then we could have looked at Galatians 3, 13 to 14, where Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And then he goes on, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. There are many passages we can look at, looking at penal substitution in the Bible. We'll look at them some more, actually, in, as, we, as we look in the next few weeks at different aspects of the cross, because they all get related back to penal substitution anyway. But instead of doing that, let's consider now some contemporary objections to penal substitution. When you're talking about penal substitution to people, they'll come back and say, but, okay? Uh, so let's think about some of those. Right? Uh, first one, uh, objection, is that penal substitution is unjust. Uh, is it unjust? Okay? Because there will, some people will say, penal substitution is unjust because God is punishing a third party for our sin. Right? Here's God, there you are with your sin, and there's Jesus being really good over there, and instead of punishing you, he punishes Jesus instead. Right? Poor Jesus, innocent third party, gets the blame for what you've done. That's not just. Well, how do we respond? Well, first of all, we must say that Jesus went to the cross willingly. Yes, he was obeying the Father's will, but he did so willingly. Yes, he did so with great trepidation, but he did so willingly. Secondly, we must note that Jesus is not a third party. Remember, Jesus is both God and man. And the fact that he is God means that our sin is against him. If Jesus were not God, this objection might have some legs. But because Jesus is God, then it's not a third party that God is punishing. God the Son is paying the debt that we owe to God. God the Son is taking the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against God. God the Son himself bears the wrath of God against sin so that we need not face it. Yes, internal to the Trinity, it is the Father who sends the Son. It is the Son who suffers on the cross. The Father doesn't die on the cross. The Son offers himself to the Father as a sacrifice. But, but the Son is still God. And while that sacrifice relates to us, the transaction is otherwise internal to God. God, the Holy Trinity, is not punishing someone else. There's no third party. Or to put it another way, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And finally, to use our human concepts of justice to judge God's actions, actually the wrong way around, isn't it? Right? God is by definition just. He is God. Justice comes from him. So the premise of the objection uh, is actually wrong anyway. Yeah. Even so, penal substitution does show God's justice very, very clearly. Because it shows that God in his justice will not simply ignore sin, even when he wants to forgive it. Justice must be done, 
and be seen to be done, sin must be punished. And in order to punish sin, God, and yet forgive the sinner, God in Christ takes the punishment instead. If God were not so just in that way, he goes, I am yeah? But that is not our God. God is perfectly just, and God's justice means that sin is punished. So it's very clear that taking God as God and his dealings with us and the world, there is no issue of injustice. But what about within God? Is there injustice in the way the Father treated the Son? Uh, a few years ago, uh, one author in the UK caused a, quite a stir by calling penal substitution cosmic child abuse. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, we must say, again, that we never set ourselves up as judges of God. Right? God judges us, not we judge God. Uh, furthermore, we're talking about inner Trinitarian relationships here. There's relationships within the persons of the Trinity. God on the inside. You've got to be very careful what we say. All right? Who are we to comment, really? But what, this, what, the, what the author said doesn't, doesn't work anyway. Because God the Son is not a vulnerable child... He is God the Son. He is not deceived or manipulated by his Father. He freely and perfectly and knowingly loves the Father. And the Father freely and perfectly and knowingly loves the Son. Yes, the Father sends the Son. And yes, the Father punishes the Son. And the Son willingly bears our punishment. But penal substitution is not about the father abusing the son. How could you ever say that and call yourself a Christian? It is the loving plan and will of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect love for all eternity. And the penal substitutionary death of Christ, we see the overflowing of that love, the sacrificial overflowing of that love, in sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Penal substitution is not cosmic child abuse. It's a, it's a demonstration of costly love. The second objection to penal substitution is that it undermines forgiveness. Now, let me read to you something I found on the internet from a Muslim apologist. Now, here's what he said. If someone owes you $1,000 and you wanted to forgive this debt, that would mean you would have to forgo the $1,000 and absorb your losses. If Kevin owes you $1,000 and you tell Kevin you don't have to pay it anymore and then John could pay it instead, it doesn't mean that you have truly forgiven Kevin's debt. Kevin's debt is still there even though it's not Kevin paying it anymore. The only way for you to truly forgive Kevin's debt is for you to absorb your losses. Similarly, the only way for God to truly forgive us our debt is to let go of the debt altogether. Now, we don't say God absolves his losses because God is independent of all creatures and there's no losses, but the logic is the same, that God would have to forgo the debt in order to truly forgive our debts. However, in Christianity, we don't see that because Jesus takes the debt and pays it. But later on he says, True forgiveness is a virtuous act of letting go of a wrong without exacting any form of payment or punishment in return. But Christianity teaches that Jesus bore the punishment of sinners on the cross, fully paying off the debt, and in that case, there is nothing to forgive. 
Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you're really going to forgive a debt, you have to absorb the loss. Makes sense, doesn't it? If God was really going to forgive the sin, that means that, that he would have to absorb the loss. But, he says, if Jesus paid for the sin, then God didn't absorb the loss, so to speak. And so he doesn't truly forgive. What's he forgetting? He's forgetting that Jesus is God, isn't he? He's right that if you, if you forgive a debt, you absorb the loss. But at the cross, that is exactly what God was doing. Once again, Jesus is not a third party. He is God. And penal substitution is the, means that God is internally paying for our sins. That is the mechanism that he uses to absorb the loss. In fact, it is Islam that has no mechanism for God to truly forgive apart from ignoring sin and jeopardizing his justice. Another objection that I've heard is that one person can't take the punishment for another. It just can't happen. Well, that is simply arguing the wrong way around, isn't it? You always have to argue from what has happened to what can happen. You can't exclude what has happened on the basis that you think it can't happen. Right? If you think it can't happen and it's happened, then you're wrong and you have to think again. And if God says it's happened, then it's happened. So that that making sense? Right? Now, having said that, there is a theological explanation for how penal substitution works that shows that one person can take a place of another. And that's got to do with another theological concept that, that underlies, not undermines, underlies okay, uh, penal substitution, and that is called the doctrine of union with Christ. Doctrine of union with Christ. Now, it sounds complicated, but actually it's really simple. Right? It's like this. When you get married... You and your spouse become one unit, right? Uh, all her assets become yours, and all your liabilities become hers. Okay? You, you count it all together, right? Everything shared, considered together, you mix it up, okay? And that is the same for our union with Christ. When we, when we trust in Christ, the Spirit enables us to trust in Christ, and the Spirit unites us spiritually with Him, okay? By faith. We're united with Christ. We are considered together as one. And so all our sins are shared with him. All his righteousness is shared with us. And so when he died, he died for our sins. He was able to be our penal substitute because we're shared with him. We're one with him. And so he's taken all our sins on our behalf. And so now, in Christ, or another way of putting in union with Christ, right, we we share what's left, that is, his righteousness. Now, those who don't understand this have sometimes spoken of, the, of penal substitution as well as the imputation of Christ's righteousness, of God counting us as righteous because of Christ, as legal fiction, as if it's got no basis. But, but it's not legal fiction, it's got a basis. The basis is the spiritual union of the believer with Christ. And so it's not bluff, it's real. Okay, the final objection I want to consider is sometimes thrown up by Christians themselves. And it's about penal substitution being a license to sin. Right? Because sometimes it sounds like, some people might say, well, if my sin has already been paid for, because the cross happened 2,000 years ago, my sin already paid for, then it's like a blank check, 
Right? Jesus died on the cross. He's paid for all my sins. Punishment already taken. So now I can just go and sin and do as much as I like and get away with it. Well, if you're thinking that, then you have forgotten the work of the Spirit. The Spirit who gives us faith in Christ and unites us to Christ by faith is the same Spirit who makes us want to live a new life and leads us to holiness. And if the Spirit is at work in our hearts, then we know Jesus as our Lord, whom we love and we want to obey. And if we don't love Him and we don't want to obey Him and He's not our Lord, then the Spirit is not at work in our hearts. And if the Spirit is not at work in our hearts, then we haven't united with Christ and the penal substitution is not for us. That is why true faith always results in good works. If you say, I trust in Jesus, but you're thinking, goody, 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 now I can go and sin as much as I like, then you know the Spirit is not working in you. Jesus is not your Lord. You're not trusting Him. Your faith is a bluff. It's the kind of faith that demons have. They say, yeah, 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 we believe in God. Right? But they don't trust Him. They don't follow Him. And they're not saved. True saving faith that comes from the Spirit is, you see the symptoms of it in good works. The good works don't, don't, don't make it work, don't contribute to it. They're just the symptoms, but they'll be there. And so is penal substitution a license to sin? Of, of course not. But it is a license to serve. Because if we are completely forgiven, then we don't have to worry about God's judgment. And we can serve him out of love and thankfulness and not out of fear that we will be punished if we don't. In conclusion then, uh, penal substitution, we said it's the hub of the wheel. Many applications are going to come out of it, therefore, and we'll explore many other applications for the sermon series. So let me just end with, 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 with this one. Penal substitution means that Jesus has taken the punishment for those who are united to him by faith. So if you are trusting in Jesus, then you can be sure that God accepts you now and that you'll be with him for eternity. You live in the assurance of God's love and forgiveness. And you can die knowing that when you die, you'll be with him. And he will raise you to resurrection life on the last day. And you can know that the final judgment won't be punishment for you because Jesus died in your place, taking your punishment already. That's a really good thing, isn't it? And that also has implications for how we, we live today. Because sometimes we try to punish ourselves for the things we do wrong. And we actually don't need to do that. Because Jesus took the punishment for us. A lot of Christians end up on the cycle we call the guilt trip. Right? We imagine God is angry with us because of our sin. So we feel far from God, which makes us easy to sin again. And then we feel worse. And then we beg for God's forgiveness. Okay, it's the last time I'm ever going to do this. And we chastise ourselves and punish ourselves and make us feel really bad. And then we kind of like do it again and think, oh, well, God's not going to forgive me now. And, you know, I feel far from God. I better not go to church because I'll be such a hypocrite. And then, you know what I mean? Yeah. The answer of the guilt trip is once again to always go back to the cross. Remember penal substitution. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God is perfectly just. And if he is happy that the punishment for sin is finished, then who am I to say otherwise? Whenever you sin, brothers and sisters, always go back to the cross. Of course we confess our sins to God. We acknowledge what we have done. And then we rejoice in his great kindness that he has provided a substitute to take the punishment for our sins. And if I take my sin back to the cross, I know, I know already that I've been forgiven. That Jesus has already paid for it. And when I see my sin on the cross, I know that God accepts me. No matter how terrible my sin is. No matter how many times I've done it. God does not hold my sin against me because it is borne by Christ. And if Jesus has taken the punishment for me, God is not going to exact it again and I don't need to punish myself again. Don't need to add my own little contribution as if the death of Jesus wasn't enough. It's bigger than all my sin. He is my penal substitute, so I don't need to fear the wrath of God. And I can serve him, not because I'm scared of his wrath, but because I love him. And I love him because he first loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is our penal substitute. Jesus' death means we are forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your great love you gave your Son to die upon the cross for our redemption. We thank you that he lovingly and willingly and obediently took the penalty of our sin, our punishment, on our behalf. And we thank you that because he did that for us, we are now completely forgiven. We praise you, we bless your son, and we ask that you enable us and to live our lives in praise of him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.